0: Grab a seat, and grab a Bible. It's good to have you here. If I've not met you, my name is Luke. Green and white, that's the answer to the question. Those are the perfect school colors. Actually, it's cream sickle and white. I should have said that, right? Orange and white, those are the best school colors. It's good to see you. Welcome to legacy. If you have a Bible or an app that you use go ahead and make your way to Ephesians Ephesians 1 verse 1 we start a new series today Ephesians 1 1 I tell you if you're pretty quick in the Bible too go ahead and stick your finger at Revelation Revelation 2 right because we're going to go there as well they're going to actually be some companion passages together that are going to help us see Jesus more clearly today because we're looking at an introduction we're looking at a greeting really I've been excited. You're going to love this passage. I really think you're going to love this series, to be honest with you. I mean, some of you, your favorite book already is Ephesians, but this is just a really fun book for a church to go through. And so I've been looking forward to this for months now. Ephesians 1, verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, pause. Those are going to be the two passages that we would look at today. I know that sounds crazy because we were just getting started, right? I'm going to have stopped right after the greeting, and we won't just do two verses every single Sunday. You would hate me for that, right? But at the same time, there is something very beautiful in this greeting, and we just can't miss it, right? We can't miss it. Greetings are important. How we greet each other is important. It's interesting because a couple years ago, the Washington Post wrote an article on how we greet each other. And the name of the article is funny. It's the worst possible greeting. And you could probably maybe agree with me as soon as I say this, but the worst possible greeting ever is how are you? Because what do you always say in return? Great. How are you? Well, I'm great. It's the it's, it's question we don't really expect an answer You know, I mean, in fact, to answer the question, how are you, to just answer that, to be honest and and just guttural and vulnerable in that moment, it would almost feel like a faux pas, right? And I could be the worst at this because even as a pastor, listen, I love you and I want to know exactly how you're doing. (laughs) I honestly do. I want to help you process it all. I want to lead. I want to encourage wherever I can. So whenever I say to you, how are you doing? I would be excited for you to be totally honest with me. I just wouldn't expect it it would feel a little bit out of step. It's not something we're used to. It's the not really question, not really answer greeting. It's like we're just making sounds towards each other. Like we're grunting. It's like 21st century grunting. It's, it's where we say, I see you seeing me, and I see that you see that I see you. That's basically what we're doing whenever we say to each other, how are you doing? It's code. It's just a code. We use codes all the time whenever we greet each other. In fact, how I greet you evolves with the kind of background information I have of you, how I see you, and maybe the proximity of our relationship. Let me tell you what I mean when I say that. If I'm sitting down with somebody in an office, like a banker or somebody like that, and I don't know this person, and let's say that they're older than me, guy or or gal, if I see them and I don't know them very well, I'm going to refer to him as sir and her as ma'am because I have no background information on them. I don't have a deep relationship. I don't have any way of seeing them. But if I knew them, let's say that we had a lunch or a couple lunches and I see them at the gym or see them somewhere else, I might call them man. Hey man, what's going on? You see how I moved from sir to man? It's, it's subtle, but it's really not too. It reflects background information. In fact, man, it doesn't take long for man to move towards bro, Right? Hey, bro, saying bro is not the same thing as saying, hey, man. If I'm in the locker room, I'm like, hey, man, that means I don't know you very well. But if I say, hey, bro, it means we've shared something together, as loose as it may be. We're bros. Some of you, you know this about me. I have a habit. I won't even call it a bad habit of calling people champ, right? Champ. That's my upgraded version of bro. Why call someone bro when you can call them champ? Because champ has, it's just short, it's short code for champion, you know? I love to call people champ. If I know you a little bit better than that, you might be my homie, right? If I think highly of you, I've called you Superman before. Some of you are you're like, yeah, he does say that. Why does he call me Superman, right? Or faith. I like to call people faith or super faith. <laughs> I've changed these words. That just means I like you a lot. Or if I see like a young, for some reason, it's like a young guy that looks like they're just hungry for Jesus and the world is just right in front of them. I call him stud. Right. I've even had some girls pull me aside and say, "Hey, when you call them a stud, what are you really saying in that moment?" All I'm saying is, I think they're awesome. I'm a big fan. I'm in their fan club. Hey, stud. I mean, I stood in there in the library and watched like all of Tennessee Tech walking by me, and I see all these young these look look at these guys. They're studs. So I'm calling them all stud. I even have them for my family. Right. My son is buddy. I call him buddy. Hey, buddy. I mean, I have sugar and princess. I call my wife pretty girl all the time. Hey, pretty girl, right? It reflects background information. It reflects our relationship. I don't call strangers super faith, right? And I don't call other women pretty girl. (laughs) Or else I'd lose my job and I'd get a dent in my head from my wife. I mean, it'd all go very poorly for me. (laughs) Greetings, they reveal our relationship and they reveal our identity, And so today's text is very, very weighty for us because Paul is greeting a church in Ephesus. That means he's greeting you as well, right? He's greeting you. Sitting there in the plastic chair in 2018, Paul is talking to you. And this is the part of the letter that we typically just breeze right through. We move through it to get to the stuff of the letter, but hear me, there's something very beautiful in this little greeting right here, and I think it could change our life. It has the potential to change the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we act forever in every sphere of life. It has the potential to do this. Ephesians is a unique letter. It's called a circulatory letter, right? It's a broad circulatory letter, which means it was written not just to Ephesus, but the metro area, Of Ephesus if someone were to write an equivalent epistle to Knoxville it would have been also important for Alcoa to read it or Maryville or Oak Ridge it would be for the larger metro area we know this primarily is because this is how he usually wrote letters but also there's no specific events spoken towards there's no like specific names being mentioned it's broad and it's not just a broad letter and very transportable as a letter it's a very personal letter too right it's emotional he put his guts into this letter we know that because he's writing it from a tough spot. You know, words change when you're in a tough spot, don't they? Words just change value depending on when they're spoken or when they're written. I mean, that's why when a little kid says their first words, those are valuable. But then that person dies many moons later, and those last words are very valuable. You hear somebody that you love speak some last words before they, they die and they finish their life on this, on this earth, and we could even turn those into maxims for our life because they have so much value to them. This book, this letter of Ephesians, was not written on a postcard. It was written from prison, right? This is what's called a prison epistle. Epistle is just another word for letter, right? Other prison letters or prison epistles would be Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, Those were all written from prison, right? In fact, just in case you were wanting to study Ephesians on your own as we go through this, if you were to use Colossians as your companion book, Colossians and Ephesians overlap by 26%, right? Which means that they were probably written very similar times. I mean, there's a lot of overlap between those two. But he spent a lot of time laboring over these churches from afar From a tough spot so stay where you're at your bible now we're just going to flash this up on the screen for you but this is out of the book of acts the very later part of the book of acts and when he came to rome paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him he lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So what's going on here is he's under house arrest and very likely a chained guard. That's not totally agreed upon, but most believe that he was chained to some degree to a guard and he had to rent those own quarters. He was renting his own cell, okay? If you go to the third world, by the way, you'll see that still to this point, right? If you go to the third world, a lot of times if you're in jail, you don't eat unless your family brings you food. You have to pay for those things. And he was allowed to minister with freedom as long as he stayed within the parameters of being in that house and renting it out. So I want you to imagine just how difficult this had to have been for Paul. He is in prison that he is having to pay for with a roommate and a guard that does not really want to be there. And the only time he gets to see people is when they come to see him. Put yourself there. Step into those shoes for just a moment and remember who Paul was. How hard could that have been for this apostolic, go with the wind? I mean, you look look at his tour schedule, and it is packed. He's used to just picking up when things get crazy and moving on and kicking up some dust in another place and then moving on, and he can't do that anymore. I mean, talk about a thorn in the flesh. He's got it difficult right here. I want you, and this is a side topic, this would be a different sermon altogether, I won't get deep into this, but I just want you to consider for a moment how influential you can be whenever you feel like God is pushing you down and you are immobile and you are not in the best of places. And I want you to consider what Paul's doing here. He can't do what he wants to do. He can't see the people he wants to see. He can't do what God has built him to do, and what does he do in response? Writes Ephesians. Writes Colossians writes an open letter to Philemon. That's what he is doing. I think to many of us, when we feel like God has his knee on our chest and we can't get up, we have a lot of quit in us. But I see Paul showing us how we can go and we can still form disciples, even when it feels like we're in a very difficult, immobile place. That's what we're seeing here. So it's a transportable letter. It's an emotional letter. It's written to the Ephesian metro area, which was a big place. I mean, when you think about Ephesians back then... It was the fourth largest known city at the time, and what they would say is the fourth or fifth most influential city in the known world. Put that into perspective, Manhattan is number 10 on that list now, okay? So as influential as Manhattan is, as influential as that part of our country is to the whole world, Ephesus was a little bit more, right? And Paul plants a church there with a small startup team, right? Imagine that. This is the equivalent of you going with some of your friends to a bustling port city like San Francisco or something like that and starting a church in a place where there are no churches, where Christianity has zero traction and Jesus' name is not even being preached. I mean, when we planted this church here with just a handful of people, strangers would walk up and say, well, what do you do? Well, we're starting a church here. They'd be like, cool, hope that goes well for you. Because there's churches everywhere. There's hundreds of them. Could you imagine being there at that time and saying, we're here to start a church? (laughs) What's a church? Oh, We're a people of Jesus. Who's Jesus? They're doing this in a very difficult city. But he was fruitful. He was fruitful, and we know that he was in Ephesus for about three years. We see this in Acts 19. Again, stay where you're at. And he entered the synagogue, and this is in Ephesus, for three months and spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. That's like a community center. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. So he was fruitful, but there was a lot of opposition there. Right? We see that. You'll see later on that people will refer to him as causing no little disturbance. Or maybe his people, the ones that Paul is leading, is turning the whole world upside down. He's fruitful, has a lot of opposition. Fruitful, but also full of tears and pain, because soon the leaders of this church that he planted, he would say goodbye to for the very last time. Lots of tears cried. Listen, I think we could share just a little bit of that pain as a church with the church that we sent across town, right? We know what it feels like to send to people, but I mean, we're going to get to whoop them in the pie off in a few weeks, right? It's not like we're never going to see them again. We get to see them often, really as often as we feel like. But with Paul, he's never going to see them again. It says that there was much weeping. They embraced Paul, kissed him sad because of what he said and that they would not see his face again. Why is all of this important? Because it frames the greeting. This is the emotional framework for the greeting. He puts his soul and his guts into this letter. And as he does that, and when someone pours their life into a letter, you look for things that pop out, trends, patterns, and there's one that is predominant in this letter, and it is the word in Christ. It pops 29 times in this letter. 29 times. That's the keynote. That's why we named this series Coram Deo. Okay, just in case you were wondering. Quorum, it's just Latin for face-to-face. That's all it means. Deo is God. So it's a face-to-face relationship with God. What it really encapsulates is the idea of being in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. Right? In the presence, under the authority, and to the glory of God. That's what it means to live a face-to-face relationship with God, a quorum Deo life. It's integrated living, really. I like how R.C. Sproul talks about this idea of quorum Deo. Not very many people talk on it. He says it this way. The Christian who compartmentalizes his or her life into two sections of the religious and the non-religious has failed to grasp the big idea. The big idea is that all of life is religious or none of life is religious. To divide the life between the religious and the non-religious is itself a sacrilege. This means that if a person fulfills his or her vocation as a steelmaker, attorney, homemaker, Coram Deo, then that person is acting every bit as religiously as a soul-winning evangelist who fulfills his vocation. It means that David was as religious when he obeyed God's call to be a shepherd as he was when he was anointed with the special grace of kingship. It means that Jesus was every bit as religious as he worked in his father's carpenter shop as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So a church that is face-to-face with God, a church that is quorum deo reveals Jesus to people in all spheres of life, in all areas of life. This is actually a very important concept and idea and, I guess, structure in the way we're even set up as a church. It's part of our mission statement. Our mission statement it's to enjoy Jesus, invest in each other, invest in the city, multiply disciples who will lead in all of life, in all of life, in the marketplace, in the city, in athletics, in the arts, in the schools, in the homes, everywhere. This way, staying at home, a mom can live in a quorum deo manner just as much as a mayor ruling over a city, Right? or a student as much as a retiree. Now here's here's the big question that you need to be asking yourself when you read books like Ephesians. Why did Paul feel the need to write on this? Why this, of all things? I'm going to submit to you that he was already starting to hear and witness a little bit of a drift from the church of Ephesus. We'll call it a gospel drift. Maybe a gospel fascination drift would be a more accurate way of describing it, right? Right? You see, when we don't live face-to-face with God, and we are not living quorum Deo lives, we grow cold and we drift. And we start to compartmentalize our lives, don't we? Those are my work friends. These are my church friends. That is my work time. This is my church time. This is my me time. That is the that time. This is my relaxation time. Everything finds a box, a label. Everything has a buffer between that. Nothing overlaps. Nothing is all unto God. You have the secular and you have the sacred, but they don't touch. That's what happens when you are not living a Corumdale life. Another thing you see is stopping is a disrupting. You stop being a part of a people that are turning the world upside down and causing a great disturbance. and You just kind of blend on in. I believe this because after 40 years of the best teaching in the known world, Ephesus was drifting. I mean, it had Priscilla. This is the teachers. This is the conference roster that was at this church. Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, John, Timothy, Paul, and anyone he decided to drag with him that day. That's who was teaching and investing in this church. They were growing cold, though. They were really quick to see heretics, as we're about to see but they were really bad at loving each other and loving God. Let's look at Revelation 2 and I'll tell you why I'm saying all of this. Revelation 2, if you're already there, we're just gonna go in verse one and read to verse five, okay? This is John's revelation and this is Jesus speaking. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands I know your works, he says to Ephesus, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first, okay? Just stop right there for a minute. Listen, we're not immune to this. I mean, this is a church that endured with the best teaching in the world, right? Paul himself planted it. And it's struggling with gospel drift, fatigue, and just a loss of imagination. We're not immune from this, right? If these guys can grow into this cold, mechanical performance, I can. You can. We can as a people. I mean, the thing about drifting is it's un- you can't see it. It's slow. It just kind of ha- That's why they call it drifting. You just kind of drift and you're there. So my big question is not how do we turn a world upside down? My big question is how do we turn a world upside down and not grow cold? I think that's a more pertinent question given this test case of Ephesians. And Jesus actually speaks through this letter of John the revelation and he says remember from where you came from repent and then really return to the things you did in the beginning return to those works and I know this is where a lot of people want to throw a flag Luke he's saying that if you just he's saying that if you just go through the actions and did what you used to do then like a love will come out of it because How does that work? And I didn't think we were a church about works anyway. That's not really what he's saying right here, right? Because we all know that returning to work without returning to love first, all that's going to do is just put us through the motions. We just go through cold motions. And coldly going through the motions is why a lot of people will argue and demand that the Bible is infallible, which it's true, it is. Or that Jesus is the only way which is true, he is, or that heretics are wrong, which is true, and that's good, but then they can't remember the last time they had a good cry over the beauty of what God has done for them. They can't remember the last time God broke their heart and made it soft under his grace. They can't remember the last time they thought and prayed for others and interceded for others and fasted for others. They can't remember the last time they made hard, radical decisions like they did back in the old days to disrupt their own life or maybe even take a chance and disrupt the world around them. They can't remember the last time they did that or innovate or be creative. They just keep the machine rolling. And going through the motions is easy, making God-shaped movements without a God-shaped affection. It's really easy. It's in our blood to do this, to not be quorum Deo. We need the gospel to make us more face-to-face, right? And going through the motions is really how the world even views the church to begin with, isn't it? I mean, that's how I see a lot of the church. I'm a pastor. I see that in a lot of the church, just going through the motions. It's actually where I get the most frustrated. We all have our things that we rant on, right? Where if you just get them started, they just kind of go and they rant, This happens to be one of mine, and I'm going to work really hard. I can get frustrated with the church in many ways. I can forgive bad graphics. I can forgive bad ideas. I can forgive dumb little attempts to capture people and get them to come to your thing. I can forgive all of that. But if I even smell of a committee meeting to elect members who will organize another meeting about talking about how many meetings you could have that year, where there will be more members brought into those organizational meetings about having another meeting, I just want to barf. I can't do it, right? Right? This overstructuring of things. It's a struggle for me. See how I almost, I almost fell for it right then? I almost started ranting. I caught myself. It's going through the motions, mechanics, cold mechanics. It never revolutionized a person, it never changed a city. It did get a rebuke here, though, we see in, in Revelation. It did get that. I think what happens is we we grow okay with drifting towards cold orthodox mechanics because it actually gives the view that we're doing something when we're not because if we have a meeting about having a meeting or we talk about talking about something and at least we walk out of that thinking well we're moving the ball down the field a little bit it gives that feeling a little bit even if we're not we at least smell progress And listen, I'm not bagging on structure and form. I mean, that's a safe place for me. I love spreadsheets. When it comes to systems and structures and forms, I love that. I gravitate towards that. Budget meetings are are a joy for me. I love stuff like this, but I do know what overstructure looks like, too. In overstructure, whenever we're pretending that there's life where it is not, that's a problem. And when life has just left something, it's really easy to take the systems and the structures and elevate it and then treat that as life itself. Treat that as the important thing. So just as a picture for what I'm talking about, because we're going to apply it to your life here in a moment, is I want you to imagine a trellis, just a white Painted, brand new trellis stuck in the ground, right next to a rose bush or some, whatever bush. Right, that trellis is going to be there to what? To help the bush get more light, get more get more food, get more water. The trellis only exists to help the life of the vegetation. But who's the star in that? It's the vegetation. It's the flowers. Right. The trellis is just there to help. What happens whenever the vegetation leaves, though? the flowers are gone then you just have a big trellis I think sometimes what I see in the church and I think what the world sees in the church is just a bunch of really nice trellises everywhere that maybe they had life at one time maybe they talk about talking about having life but now it's just been painted and shellacked and painted and fixed and painted and now they protect the trellis and the trellis is protected at all costs the way things happen needs to always be this way This is the way things have always been. I think this is what's happening at Ephesus. I think they're having trellis meetings. And Paul caught wind of it. I think another thing that going through the motions can do, and just the idea of keeping things moving, is it can stifle creative innovation. It can stifle creativity. I mean, innovation and creativity, it is born from a passionate outlook where you see something like a need, you're compassionate and you're broken over it, and you just start dreaming of ways to fix what is broken. I mean, that's why we invent things, isn't it? That's where inventions come from. You see a problem, and you start dreaming of possible ways to fix that problem. All the best ministries in the world outside of the local church were an answer to a problem that no one was having a very good time answering. I mean, look, I was just talking this morning with a couple about Sunday school. Go back on your own time and research the origins of Sunday school. Back in England, way, way, way back in the day. That was developed for children that worked in the coal mine during the day. That didn't know how to read. So the church was gonna teach these kids that worked in the coal mine how to read, and they were gonna use the Bible and Bible stories to do that, right? Looks a little different now, doesn't it? Sunday school. Missional communities. It's a riff. It is an invention. It's just not that we invented it as a church because it's Acts 2, but you're starting to see it sweep over the United States again. The idea that when we gather as communities, we're not just communities that just read and get to know each other, but we're actually communities that have an outward posture to a broken city, right? Or campus ministry would be very firmly on that list. If you're a steel worker or a student or an engineer and you're living a quorum deo life, you will see things with, it, with an eye towards innovation and creativity, because your heart will be broken for something and you'll just start dreaming of possible ways because you have no compartments anymore and there's no secular and sacred you see an issue you hear the gospel in 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 your heart and you start begging god for an answer for it and creativity and innovation comes in fact you probably need people to be around you to tell you that your ideas won't work because you just can't see any limits at the time you're so excited about fixing the problem But without all of this awareness that comes with a quorum deo life, we end up just being a watchful church that witnesses the church sink. Yeah, we won't do anything because we've never done anything, and that's just not the way you do things. And we stop disrupting. We stop being inventive. We could bark at heretics, but we've lost our first love, right? And what if we were to just scope it down to your plastic seat and you individually? What are you doing because that's just the way you've always done it? Think about it, because we sure hate it when people come in and start messing with it, don't we? It's hard to think of it now until someone puts their fingerprints on it. Then you're like, that's not the way I usually do things. I have a way I do it. That's not it, right? What are you doing? Where has cold mechanics and strict orthodoxy pushed you away from love in a non-disruptive life? Are you losing your first love? Have you lost creativity and innovation? Are you having a hard time seeing the broken world around you with compassion? These are hard questions. I'll I'll give you a couple diagnostics to help you if you're having a hard time just envisioning where that's true in your life. Are people upset or disturbed by the effects of what you believe? Because this is a part of your heritage, by the way. This is your heritage. It's for people to be upset because of what you believe. I mean, in Acts 17, it says, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, and they have come here also. If we're not disturbing people with our beliefs, it's because they don't know what we believe, and it's because they don't know what we believe, because there's no effects to those beliefs. We're not flipping anything upside down. You see, it's impossible for a people who are face-to-face with God, it's impossible for those people to blend in with people who are not face-to-face with God. Jesus had a hard time blending in with the status quo and the culture. Why would a small Jesus or a mini-Jesus or a Christian have an easy time doing that? So just consider what you're disturbing, right? Are people intrigued by what you believe? This is also a part of your heritage, that people would be intrigued. Look through just uh, uh, just take a an easy walk through the New Testament, and you see figures like Nicodemus or Zacchaeus or Pilate or Roman officials or Jewish officials or priests, and they have this. You could almost see it. They have this posture of wait, 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 wait. I don't like what you're talking about, but tell me a little bit more, right? <laughs> I'm not about to be converted, but how about we bring you back tomorrow and we can kind of pick up where we left off? They're intrigued. They're coming in the middle of the night. They're full of questions. They're climbing trees. They want to know the reason for the hope that you have. Are people pushed away? Are they intrigued? Here's the big one I want to major on, though. Are you reproducing disciples? It sounds right field, I know. But a quorum deo life, a face to face life with God, it attracts disciples and it makes disciples. It attracts and it makes. Let me be frank for just a moment. If your life strategy is, I will make disciples one day whenever I get my own stuff cleaned up, whenever I get to a better place in my life, then I will be at a place where I can make disciples. If that is your life strategy, let me just ask you a couple questions. What does clean enough even look like? You will probably get through that problem and you will have two more waiting for you when you do. What is that better place you have in mind Exactly. I just, I find, I'm finding more and more Christians who are self administering a pause from the Great Commission. They have decided to hit the pause for whatever reason. And and sometimes they'll tell you that there are good reasons. Hey, I just lost my marriage. I'm going to hit the pause on building disciples. I lost my job, right? I'm broke. I'm having a hard time with my teenager. School is difficult right now. I'm going to hit pause on making disciples. Bro. That's my term of endearment for you right now. Bro, where do you see that in the Bible? Where do we see any evidence of it being okay for us to take the great commission that Jesus died on the cross to tell us, to put us in line with? Where do we see the okay, the buy, the green thumb on just hitting pause on that? I don't see it anywhere. We're, We're told nowhere to cruise for years on end until we reach a certain level of cleanliness. I don't even know what that would look like. Even if you're struggling through something, even if you're fighting your way through something, you can help shape others to look more like Jesus. My goodness, I mean, all the great men and women who have made me who I am today, they were all radically flawed. All of them, under attack all the time. They were all misbehaving, they all struggled, they all have pains, they all have stories, they were all full of doubts, they're all full of fears, they were even addicts. Living quorum Deo is not living perfectly, it's living face-to-face under the authority and in submission to God. That's what it is. So just ask yourself, who are you discipling? Here's a better question, do they know it? Are they aware of this process happening where you were molding them and helping them look more like Jesus? You'll know because they asked you, right? Often. Has anyone come up to you and said, hey, I see the way that you study, or I see the way that you handle your parents, I see the way that you handle your wife, your husband, I see the way that you handle others, your time, your money, and I just would like to, to hear more about it. I'm curious to what you think. Could you help me? Do you strategize for other people? Do you pray for them? Are you making disciples? Listen, it's, it's not lost on me how heavy of a sermon this can be, how condemning that this can make people feel, Right? Because, it, after, again, it's hard to flip the world upside down when we're having a hard time talking to our spouse. Just putting words in a sentence that communicates what we are trying to say. That is hard enough, right? Or raising kids or just getting through the day without feeling like a total loser. It's hard. That's not lost on me. And I also know that no one likes to be mechanically cold. So how do we find our first love? How do we do what Jesus is saying in Revelation 2? How do we find our first love? I'm going to go back to this greeting in Ephesians 1. We're going to look at the second verse only. This is out of the message. I greet you with the grace and peace poured into our lives by God, our Father, and our Master, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are the two words that should be popping out right there. Our answer is in the greeting. And remember, greetings reveal identity, how God sees us, and his proximity to us. And he says he greets us with grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace, as you know, we hit it every week, it's God's unmerited favor to you, totally despite you. Peace is the absence of war and hostility and tension. It's all of that gone. These are important. It's because of Jesus taking the war and strife around us that we even have peace. And listen, hear me clearly. It's not some situation where Jesus walked up to a red-faced father stomping around trying to kind of reason with the father away from the brink of destroying everybody. And because he did that, we have peace now because Jesus is a good deliberator, I guess. It's not how it went down. He actually received that punishment and wrath so that we wouldn't. He didn't talk him away from it. He just took it. And this is controversial. This is provocative and controversial as a doctrine, right? In fact, just a handful of years ago, the PCUSA church removed the song, In Christ Alone, from their hymnal, right? the the PCUSA church, that's just one of the branches of the Presbyterian tree. There's a lot. There's the PCA. I think there's the EPC. There's the OP something. I mean, there's a lot of them. And there's some really beautiful Christians, some really good movement going on. But on a little bit more of a liberal angle or a liberal side of that in the PCUSA, they struggled with the third stanza of that song. It's the stanza that if you go to a, like an Acts 29 conference or a Baptist conference, this is where everybody gets rowdy. This is where all the pastors get loud. They all know this. Verse right till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I mean, the room is just out of control at that point, right? They wanted to change it to as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They're gonna take out the wrath and the satisfaction of wrath, they're gonna take it out. And now, in order for them to do this in the hymnal, they had to go back and talk to the authors of the hymn and get an okay. And the author said, No, we're gonna keep the original wording, we believe in the doctrine. So they put the PCUSA to a vote, they voted it down, 9 to 6, we're going to delete it from the hymnal. This was their official statement. The view that the cross is primarily about God's need to assuage God's anger would have a hear this, would have a negative effect on the hymnal's ability to form the faith of coming generations. Translation, it's going to be too tough for millennials and those coming afterward. Okay? It's going to just be too tough for the young folk. To see God clearly in that. So we're deleting it. Okay? This is the main thread of what we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. (laughs) is the need for man to be made right with God. And God wasn't satisfied until his wrath fell upon our replacement. Jesus has come as God in the flesh as that replacement. A perfect solution to God's wrath, peace, grace, justice, and wrath... Being set on and satisfied in Jesus means there is none for his children. There's none left. It's been poured out to the very last drop. God might discipline you. He will never punish you as a Christian. God might discipline you, but you will never feel his wrath. That's been answered. You will just feel peace, just peace and just grace. This is God's grace to us, and Paul recognizes this, and he believes it to be important enough to be in the greeting of the letter. See, greetings are important, right? This is provocative. This is a provocative gospel that leads us to live a a life of face-to-faceness with God, right? And forgetting this beauty of what we're talking about, forgetting this beautiful gospel, that's how you lose your first love. And so it just slips from your grasp. You grow cold. You might be correct, but you're cold all the same. It's how you live a life of going through the motions. This is why Jesus says, through john remember where you came from remember the first love from which you've fallen and then what does he say repent repent for what for elevating things while we devalue god right repent from that from making idols from building trellises and then return return to the feet of god remember that place i mean if you've been a christian for a long time it's a little bit more of an exercise to do this but remember that place where you used to sit at jesus's feet and you were full of wonder. Full of questions, yeah. Right? You just didn't know very much. You had so many questions, but you were so full of wonder, and dreams, and creativity, and what-ifs. And boy, did you make radical decisions, right? Crazy decisions. People around you, they couldn't understand just this different life you were living. Remember that place and what that felt like I could tell when I'm getting off. And this is how I can tell when I'm getting off and I start to drift and get cold like this. I start playing conservative in my decisions. I stop dreaming. I start feeling like I know it all. That's how I know I'm growing sick, right? So I'm gonna put one application out there. And that's just that we look at the act of spiritual disciplines. Because if we're gonna talk about sitting at the feet of Jesus, what does that mean? And the best way I know to explain explain what a spiritual discipline is, just a moment or a movement towards the feet of Jesus. Spiritual disciplines, you'll hear the word used often or the phrase, it's just motions and movements we go through that place us in a perceived, aware presence of God. I want you to imagine Martha and Mary and Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, hanging on every word that's coming from his mouth. A spiritual discipline is something that puts you in that place. It might be quick, it might be long, it might be more reflective, It might be more discovery based, right? It might depend on your personality. I know we've got some singers in here. We've got some not singers in here, right? We've got some journalers. For the two of you out there, I mean, journaling is a spiritual discipline. There's all kinds of spiritual disciplines celebration, which we'll do here in a moment, communion, which is in the back and we'll talk about in a moment, Sabbath. Worship, contemplation, prayers of examine, journaling, as I said, retreat, silence and solitude, waiting, community on a DNA level is what we call it, discipling, mentoring, hospitality, devotional reading, meditation, memorization, encouraging others, forgiveness, fasting, intercession, listening prayer, prayer walks, liturgical prayer, praying scripture. Notice I haven't said Bible study yet which is usually where we all go whenever we think of spiritual disciplines. We think about being camped out in the study notes underneath all the passages, trying to make ourselves correct when it might not always mean sitting at the feet of Jesus. Right? Adele Calhoun wrote a book, really a handbook, called Spiritual Disciplines. She lists and catalogs and describes 75 different disciplines We're actually going to have a class here in a few weeks called Sitting Still, which we're going to cherry pick some of those. Some of those are really old, some are fairly new, where we just talk about what does it mean to sit at the feet of Jesus? In fact, if you want to throw that list up on the screen, there's a list of books. I think I put five up there. You could take a picture of it if you want. Um, These are books that I think were helpful for me, Learning Spiritual Disciplines. Um, We will probably pick one of those in the class and go through it But if this is of interest to you and you want to learn more about what it means to have a face-to-face relationship with god To have more of a quorum deo life and not just get smarter But actually have your heart nurtured and nurturing your affections. Those would be some good books to start off with But this is what returning to the first works that you did at first. This is what it means It means going back to the feet of jesus It means enjoying jesus that's a transformative time. That's actually in our mission statement as well, it, to enjoy Jesus. And listen, our mission statement's been through three or four iterations. That's what's supposed to happen when as a church grows. But those words, enjoy Jesus, have never left. That has always been in our mission statement, to enjoy Jesus. Because people who regularly do that, they find it harder to grow cold. People who are regularly enjoying Jesus find it harder to not disrupt their own lives and not disrupt the lives around them. People who enjoy Jesus find it easier to be creative and innovative for those just deep gospel fractured problems they see in all the broken cities they live in. In fact, even as leaders, this church's leaders, when we get together and we start sniffing problems with each other, we usually know to go right at the spiritual disciplines. How is your time at the feet of Jesus? Where is that needle moving? You're doing better or you're doing worse, but you can't be doing the same. How does that look? See, a quorum deo life, you will see failure differently. You'll see patience differently. You'll see struggling, pain differently. Because when a war has been stilled and you find peace where you should have been destroyed, your only appropriate response is to enjoy the view and celebrate grace. This is how a heart stays warm and countercultural. This is what keeps you from growing stale, right? Right? I mean, if the gospel is anything, it's a message that tells you you have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose. And you can't stop a person that has nothing to lose. You can't stop a people that have nothing to lose. You cannot stop a church that has nothing to lose. Right? Listen, let's go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to close this out. We're going to take communion in the back. We're trying different ways and shapes and methods of explaining what communion is. But communion, with broken bread and an open cup, is just a receipt that you have grace and peace on you. That you have grace and peace. As you take the broken bread in the back, as the song's going, and you go back with your your bestie or your family, or you go back by yourself, and you're taking communion, and however you take it as a Christian, it's a signature, it's a receipt that grace and peace has been administered to you. It is for the church. If you're not a part of the church, you're not a lover of Jesus, we'd ask that you not take communion. We would beg you to take Jesus instead. Communion celebrates this greeting that we have in this letter. Communion and the intro to Ephesians, they touch because life was poured out that we may drink deeply. And when you take communion, listen, and you're short of words, you don't know what to say. Maybe you're a, a husband with a family or a mom with kids or a roommate, you don't know what to say. All you need to say is grace and peace to you in Christ. And that would be the gospel. Grace and peace to you in Christ. Grace and peace. Those are big words. And that would be the gospel. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for grace and peace. If that's the only thing that we did for the, etern- for, for, for the rest of the time we had left here until you come back, that would be enough. That you have gifted us with grace and you have given us favor and peace when we deserve war. We deserve strife. We deserve ruin. And you have just handcrafted a peace at your cost at our benefit. That is the gospel. And I know it's true because we celebrate it through broken bread and spilled blood. That communion touches what we're talking about today. So, Lord, as we pray and as we sing, as we write checks, as we As we high-five each other, as we hug each other, as we respond to you in the various ways that we would call worship, Lord, help us see by the power of your Holy Spirit where our hearts are growing cold and stale and mechanical. And Lord, show us the way to find our first love again. Give us new sight of your gospel. Replenish that excitement that we had whenever we encountered it for the first time. Lord, that we would fall in love with that story. That we would see you and have our affections nurtured anew. God, we love you so much. Help us love you more. Lord, we will never have the preaching and the teaching here that that church in in Ephesus did. We just won't. But Father, I I don't want this to be a place where we grow cold. A place where we just talk about the trellis all the time. A talk where we just go through the motions. Lord, help us be a church that this city looks at and says something is different. It's intriguing, it turns me off, but I have to know more. And they are making disciples. Lord, help us be a church that lives Coram Deo. We might be failed and flawed and full of problems, but we would be face-to-face with you. Help us be a face-to-face body in this city that we would lead a city to see you face-to-face.